Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Dual Access Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Kriebel. I'm also the global head coach of the Data School. If you're interested in really good consultants in the data space, let me know. And hopefully my guest today will reach out to me about that. Uh, we'll <laughs> see. Uh, but the purpose of this podcast is to introduce you to influential in, in, uh, influential people in data. And today I'm speaking with Kim Reese. I first met Kim, I believe it was in 2014 at the Tapestry Conference. I don't know if that rings a bell, Kim, or not. Um, <clears throat> back then, Kim was the co-founder of Periscopic and the head of visualization there as well. In 2018, she started the um, data experience team at Capital One. I'm going to ask about that because that seems like uh, kind of a mythical sort of thing. Uh, she's, <laughs> a fre- she's a frequent keynote speaker and design executive. Uh, we're going to talk about her work in making data work for people instead of people working for data, which is her tagline on LinkedIn. Kim continues to be incredibly influential by using data to increase social awareness, though you probably don't need it. I bet you've seen one of her pieces of work in particular around gun deaths in America. That was uh, back in 2018 or maybe maybe earlier than that. But I checked recently and it's still up, so which is neat. But it's a really neat visualization that looks at the number of deaths and then the years of lives that were, that were lost because of that. Um, Periscopic, her work has been used to, to promote data transparency and public awareness and to deliver messages of action. Education, government, gun violence, politics, tech, she's done it all. And thanks for joining me, Kim. Thanks, Andy. I, I sort of had a puzzled look when you said Tapestry in 2014, uh, which may have been where we met, but I feel like I've known you much longer than that. So. <laughs> in, in person. I think that was the first time we met. we met in person. And then shortly after that, uh, so I was at Facebook at the time, and then you invited me to come up and meet your team and see how you all were using using Tableau. And uh, it was really neat to, um, yeah, you were one of the first groups that I saw using Tableau as like basically just a prototyping and data analysis tool. And then you do the really cool stuff in, in something else, So, it, which which is interesting because I think that's actually the most powerful use case for Tableau is the data ex- the kind of ex- exploratory part of, of Tableau. Yeah. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I still, I still use Tableau as my sort of go-to tool for exploratory, you know, just looking at the data, getting a sense for the shape of yeah. it and understanding of it before, you know, moving on to, you know, but maybe yeah. starting in Tableau or maybe going on to some other. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, so I'm just going to hop right into the questions. I forgot to, got to, I broke them down into a couple of different categories. I don't know if you looked at them ahead of time or not. I saw you in the Google sheet, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, so let's see how it goes. Your tagline in on LinkedIn is what really stuck out to me when you say making data work for people instead of people work for data. What does that even mean? Yeah. Um, so for me, this, that tagline came out of like just having lots of conversations with various folks on my teams over the years. And, um, the one thing that sort of is a constant is that anybody working with data, their relationship with data is usually just fraught with all sorts of problems and tension and angst. <laughs> angst. <laughs> so whether it's you know collecting data or accessing data or transforming data, getting it in a shape, understanding like what's in the data, mm. analyzing data, making sense of it, communicating the data, all of these different activities um, 
people have to work really hard at any point along the way uh, with data. And and so what, the one thing that I've observed over the many years of my career is people are just constantly working for data, uh, regardless of where they are in that uh, workflow or life cycle of data. And what I'm really compelled by as a practitioner in this space, as a, you know, as a designer or technologist is how do we change that? How do we make things easier? How do we make, Mm -hmm. put data in service of people, make it easy for them to use, um, really help us to make sense of it in a way that it benefits humanity. Um, And so you can look at it from a multitude of angles, but that's really the crux of it is like, how do we flip the script on you know, all of this problem laden space and make things easier for people. Right. Right. Easier said than done though. Right. <laughs> I could live 10. Have, you, have you gotten there yet? Lucrative career in this space. <laughs> <laughs> have you gotten there yet? <laughs> I haven't even like scratched the surface. <laughs> okay. So that, that's the end goal, you know, before you die, you know, hopefully you, 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 un, you get below the first layer. Uh, yes. <laughs> hopefully get a, make a, make good on a little bit of it. Yeah. And I guess, so when you were running periscopic, that would have been much easier to kind of have control over versus going to a massive organization like capital one. Uh, what are the, you know, what sort of issues have you run into trying to implement that kind of philosophy at such a massive organization? Yeah. Um, I mean, the one thing that I really loved about Capital One when I got there. So when I when I went to Capital One, I was brought in to um, create essentially the data visualization design discipline. And once in, in the design org. And so once I got there, I sort of just went on a listening tour, looked, you know, got it, got the lay of the land. And I was like, man, this place is so data driven. Like they have tons of data. Everybody's doing data viz. Why am I here? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, but of course, you know, as we all know, data viz is a, you know, there are many different, you know, types of of data visualization. Um, But uh, when I, when you think about, um, you know, how do you how do you approach the work at such a massive scale? Um, you know, the the thing that I observe there and is endemic everywhere is you have multitudes of data, you have gobs and gobs of data, and most people take it and basically take it in the format that it's in and put it on the screen and that dashboard and. As we all know, as as you know, Andy, it's <laughs> the problem is, and how do you uh, put the data in a visual in a way that is um, that actually serves the needs of people, right? right so right. it's more about like what's the problem that you're trying to solve? What are you trying to understand mm-hmm. about that data? You're gonna help with the sense making side of it, right? Right. Um, and so that's the approach that we got started off is, is like, okay, we're actually in the business of data sense making. Um, and, uh, and how do we, how do we approach that at the company? Um, and so when you get to a place like Capital One or now when, where I'm at now, JP Morgan, um, just the massive scale, like you said, is, 
is very uh, challenging. Like, how do you bring that sort of, um, it's almost like a bespoke practice, if you will. It just doesn't scale, right? right? Uh, And so what I quickly learned at Capital One was, okay, we need to zoom out of of these, you know, individual sense-making projects um, that are actually doing a lot of good and we could spend, you know, 18 lifetimes working on those things. Um, but what, how do you really zoom out to to understand what would be most helpful at an enterprise scale? Uh, and that's where I started to get into more of the um, enterprise tooling, the um, UX design for uh, data tools and uh, products at the company. And and that's really where I started to find, okay, here's the uh, here's something that when we adi- apply a, a data, lens to UX at that layer of um, where everybody's, you know, coming into a product or platform uh, to use data. That's where you can really have a lot of impact is is at that layer, layer of commonality, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really been, um, at least at Capital One, I'm sure I'll have the same experience here at JP Morgan of, of sort of going through the stack of uh, where can I make the most impact with with the resources that I have, where people are having common uh, problems in that, you know, data working for people um, in space, where, where, where can we start to play there? Okay. Do you, did you run into issues where people are starting, they just assume they need all the data instead of thinking about kind of the question they're trying to answer first and then deciding, well, what data do I need to answer that question? I'm sure you've run into that. How do you how do you talk people through that process? It's really hard to get people to think that way. To work, you almost have to work backwards. Yes. Uh, in order to you know, they're going to drown otherwise. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's either you know it's one of two variants. I find people just want all the data and then let like you know help me you know visualize it, or they get so myopic on one little thing. And they can't sort of zoom out from from that. And so you have both ends of the spectrum. That is the hard work. It's really that reframing of, it's like reframing the data. Like you you almost have to say, like, put the data away. Like, let's think about the data. Tell me what it is you're trying to solve. And sometimes people don't even know what they're trying to do, right? And so it can be incredibly painful um, it can be, you know, emotional for people because sometimes they have to feel like they're admitting they don't know what they're doing. They don't know really why they're even looking at the data in the first place. Um, it's a very, uh, it can be a very sensitive space for people. So coming in with a lot of empathy for those people, I find, goes a long way. So understanding, hey, this person probably doesn't even know why they want this data or what it is that they're trying to grasp from it. They just started there because it's what they had available, right? Um, And so taking a step back and really seeing people um, just as other people and and understanding more, one, about them, why they're doing the work that they're doing, um, and really getting more, um, you know, into the relationship with that person and then guiding them through a conversation of like, okay, tell me what you're trying to, tell me what you're trying to do, you know, depending on who the person is, like, uh, are they trying to do analysis and what, what are they trying to solve for? Um, and then really just 
having that as a conversation. Um, and that will often really unlock things along the way as right. far as, um, you know, how you can help them start to think about the data. And oftentimes you go in a completely different direction from where they started. Um, and it can be a lot of fun. And I think building that trust with someone from the very start, um, creating a safe space where they can just have a candid conversation about what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is essential. So you're not really there to judge them. You're there to help them along the way. You're actually going to make their, make it a lot faster in the project for them if, if they, you know, versus doing it the way that they were thinking of doing it. And then of course, at the end, everybody just wants the data in Excel. I worked with this great woman, Diana Yu, who uh, was at Capital One uh, previously from Pew Research. And she, when she got to Capital One, she went on a mission to to eradicate uh, spreadsheets and and she called it (laughs) de-spreadsheetification. always have that yeah, like yeah. mantra <laughs> yeah, and I, I think what people don't realize is that once you put the data into excel you never know if it's right again <laughs> you know because somebody might put a column in there that has a formula that then somebody that could be wrong and people take it as gospel you know yes. uh, I, I i don't know it's a frustration i guess maybe it's because we're more in the design space and you know we like leaving the data alone and not, you know, finagling on the front side, not in some spreadsheet that then they email to somebody else and they change it. And then, you know, 50, uh, uh, you know, 50 iterations down the line, it's not even the same data set. So it's interesting. I mean, I feel like you could point to anywhere though, along the life cycle of data and still show that like you could, I mean, I've heard stories of data collection. Well, I guess it goes back to Excel or whatever it's stored in, but but even data collection, you can, you know, if say you have a, a format that doesn't mm-hmm. support the full significant digits, for instance, that you need in a in a data type, and you know, people start entering data and it's all wrong from the very beginning. <laughs> well, and there's typos, and you know, oh, <laughs> and they put an extra zero on something. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like we're having a great quarter. Uh, no, we're not. <laughs> Yeah. Great. Um, so <clears throat> going back to kind of your philosophy, um, you know, making making data work for people, how well has your have, how about your personal work that you've done? How well have you been able to follow that principle? How well have I been able to follow that? <laughs> It's kind of like, you know, are you on the side of do as I say, not as I do, or <laughs> I think that mantra for me is, it really is at, I don't know how well I do it. Okay. I'll just be Fair honest. enough. Right. <laughs> but I think it really is at the core of what drives me. And um, it's regardless of where I sit in the space of data. So whether it's in data communications and data sense making, data visualization, or if it's in, you know, database design, or if it's in like a workflow product design, it's at the crux of it is just what is the, what is the person trying to do here? And I feel like I'm a really empathetic person. And so I'm just naturally driven to want to fix things for people 
and make their lives better. Um, and so I find that to be just the way I operate almost. Um, and so it's, um, it re- so regardless of what I'm working on, it's, that's really where I like to spend my time is how to, what, what is causing problems for people? Um, and, and how do we, how do we fix that? So, um, you know, you mentioned personal work. I don't know that I have any personal work, but one thing I've been getting into really recently is um, generative AI tools and things like Dali and uh, Midjourney and, and tools like that, which I have a lot of fun experimenting with. And I think they're really exciting. And I think there's going to be a huge change in the way a lot of industries operate once these um, tools start to get good, which is today. Uh, um, But I think some of the things that I think about in that space are how are things going to change for people when once these technologies and capabilities are starting to be adopted by different industries, what's going to change for folks? Um, So, you know, I think that that approach that I have um, to data applies to really any kind of, um, you know, technology, any uh, capability that we're faced with on a daily basis. And that's really what drives me day to day. Oh, no, I lost your audio, Andy. There we go. Sorry about that. I think I hit a button on my mic by accident. The when you mentioned AI, it, it made me think about how a lot of tools are now building that into their products. So it might be where you know you have a pretty simple chart, and you want to know why you know the AI will try to interpret why there's this outlier, something like that. Ultimately, the AIs are built by humans. Uh, you know, the the coding is done by humans. Why should we trust it? Are you asking me why? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Like what? If so, you know, you, you get some kind of result back from you know what you know. So the AI runs some kind of analysis in the background, Got and it. it says this is why there's that outlier. Got it. <clears throat> Should we just take it as gospel that it's true? <laughs> we should never. So what would you do then in that step? Would you then go try to reproduce that analysis that that's done? You know, I think. Well, one, I think automation and AI are hugely, um, they can give such a lift to, to everything, right? So I'm, I'm a firm believer in using AI in, in automation. So in that sense, like, hey, if there's an AI spotting patterns in something, it's probably going to be able to do it at speed and, and it, with capacity right. that humans don't have, right? So one, I absolutely love that. Um, but the other side of it is, I mean, it just in the way that, uh, I would make the same argument about data. Like I don't take any data as gospel, gospel truth either. Mm. Like data is, has a perspective when people collect it, right? AI has a perspective. Uh, any type of technology you use is, comes from the people who designed it. Uh, and so it comes with a perspective um, that doesn't mean it's not beneficial. It could absolutely, I mean, an AI is going to spot all sorts of patterns. It's up to us to question that and, and see, and also be, um, you know, not just to take things at face value, but really look at, okay, what are the implications here? What should, what are, how do I feel about that? How do I want to think mm-hmm. about that? 
data or, or analysis that's being done. Um, but I think it absolutely provides shortcuts and speed to getting to more answers, getting to more interpretations. Um, how do I make use of that information? I'm super hopeful about AI finding patterns and things that we never, our you know, human minds have not explored yet, right? right. Um, and you know, when you're looking at massive, massive amounts of data, uh, you know, I think there's a huge promise for AI uh, in in spaces like healthcare and and right. all, all sorts of places where I think we can benefit uh, humanity uh, once we are able to unlock that in a in a safe way. And hopefully, it's used for good, not for not for evil. So ultimately, if there's money to be made, it's going to be used for evil, probably. So yes. Yes. Un- unfortunately, money money still rules. Yeah. Still rule the world. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> how did you go about, you know, when, when you're building your teams and you want to talk to them about kind of your approach to projects and to, you know, this kind of philosophy uh, or, you know, the way that you have empathy for people, how do you, how do you kind of ramp up your teams to think that same way? Um, I'm, you know, I think I spend scare a lot them off first or what's that? You scare them off first <laughs> to scare people. First. <laughs> um, a couple of things. I like to share stories with folks of, um, you know, just from my experience. Uh, and, and I often, because I don't like to be prescriptive with folks. Mm-hmm. I like them to, I like to share my experience. Um, you know, I'm getting old. You can't see my gray hairs on this camera. <laughs> that is, I got a lot of gray spent a lot of time in this field. Uh, so I, I spend a lot of time sharing stories of, of things that I've worked on and things that I've learned along the way. Um, and, and I think that helps really uncover why I take the approaches that I do. So it, it, it helps contextualize, I guess, for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I like to learn by doing and have my teams learn by doing. And so just getting into the thick of things and experimenting and then providing guidance along the way uh, is the way I like to operate. So mm-hmm. giving folks the room to do their work uh, and they always, folks always surprise me by the things they come up with. And I've, I get a lot of joy out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, you know, uh, giving guidance along the way as far as, you know, I think always getting back to the human side, always getting back to, um, you know, who is this in service of? How are we, you know, I don't like using technology for technology's sake, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And so just having, you know, real conversations about what the benefits are of, of the work that we're doing. Um, I found that people generally speaking really gravitate towards helping others. And so uh, giving them the latitude to do that, I think is, is often just all that's needed. Yeah. You just made me think of a question about you as a manager. Um, What was your worst quality as a manager? What was my what? Your worst quality as a manager. (laughs) I'm sure I have many. (laughs) Well, let's say, let me phrase it a different way. That sounds really terrible. What's one thing that you think you could improve upon as a manager? Um, 
many things, but my, I had this great manager, Steph, um, who was my first manager at Capital One. And she was a phenomenal manager. I loved working with her. Um, She's still a really good friend. Um, And, but she would have this phrase for me. (laughs) She always said, Kim, your eyes are bigger than your belly. And so, uh, which is always true. It's, it's means that I always want to do more than I'm capable of. Right. And, and so that, that's the one thing I still struggle with. I get really excited by the work. I get really excited Mm -hmm. when I see things that we could help with and, right. And so, and there's always going to be way more than we can tackle. Um, and so that's sometimes I would get out in front of my, get out over my skis and promising too much and, and putting the team in a, in a tough spot. <laughs> promising for the team. <laughs> that's a good way to make them happy. We're not going to be able to recruit anybody out there. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Um, but uh and uh, so that's one thing I think. But as a manager, um, you know, I don't know. You'd have to talk to some yeah. of them. <laughs> <laughs> what about your strengths? What do you, what do you think that if you were to, um, you know, say I start managing a team, for example, what advice would you give me to, um, you know, make sure I have a great team? Yeah, um, I think you know, giving people again the space to to do their best. Um, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed doing was just creating the conditions for people to be successful. Right. Um, and, and once you create that space and, and let people do their best work, give them air cover, um, give them the things that they need to, you know, to see, you know, your job as a manager to secure that safe space for folks to do their work. Um, and so I think that was that was one of the areas I really enjoyed uh, working in, and and um, you know I think creating creating that space is uh, you know it's it sounds easier sometimes than it actually is. Um, there are a lot of things that go into um, creating a space where people do their best work. So there are lots of things regarding it with partners and, and the workspace and, and those types of things, but also with like HR and the systems that people do, you know, use for their work. Uh, so there are a lot of things that go into that, but I find by doing that uh, sort of fundamental work, it unlocks a huge potential. Um, and, and, and once you create that space, people will take advantage of it, you know, like in a good way, like they will. Yeah in that environment. Yeah. I like to think of it as when I'm training people at the data school, um, you know, my job is to get stuff out of the way or the coaches that work with me, uh, you know, they don't report to me, but we kind of have, you know, um, my job is to make them successful. So if they're not successful, I see it more as my fault than their own. Right. Cause yeah. maybe, but it, it's also goes both directions where they have to tell me what I need to get out of their way. If something's, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, preventing them from going on. And I also kind of have a, have a a philosophy that I should be trying, always be trying to work myself out of a job. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so if I'm helping people grow, eventually I won't be needed anymore. So Mm -hmm. I've done good for somebody else, at least. I mean, it may not be good for me, but 
<laughs> in the long run. Uh, yeah, you know. I love that. That's very altruistic. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I'm just going to have a quick look. Okay, here's a good one for you. So big company, how'd you manage the politics? Oh, I, you know. <laughs> They're inevitable in a big organization, right? Inevitable. Kind of dog eat dog sometimes. Yeah. Um, they, yeah, you cannot, they're unavoidable. Um, it's, I think one of the, one I will just share, I hate politics. I hate office politics. I Everybody try. does too, right? Everybody hates it, but they do it anyway. But they do it. <laughs> it's like, why are you doing this? Yeah. <laughs> You're not helping anybody, even in yourself. Um, so one, I try to, as much as possible, just let the politics be, I don't want to say ignore them. That's not the right word that I'm looking for, but because they are what they are and there are reasons why those politics exist. Um, I didn't like to spend a lot of time figuring out like why, why, why you could spend a lifetime figuring out people's politics, right? And it will get you nowhere at the end of the day. Um, and so one thing I would try to focus on, and I think it's, um, you, you know, being in the design org, it's, you can often find a space to operate in that is, I don't want to say immune to the politics, because certainly not, but um, it sort of lives outside of some of the politics because you can focus right. on, like, what is the thread or what's the problem um, that is sort of rises above the politics um, where we can have a conversation that is more logical and, you know, sort of get people out of the political space. Now, that doesn't require a lot of work to figure out, like, where, you know, again, like, where in this in the layers, can you find a space where people can be a little more agnostic? Um, and that requires, you know, a lot of legwork, but it was the approach that I took being an analytical person. I would try to find like, where's the space where people can find that common ground um, and not have an argument about this thing. Now their politics and they may have other things that they care about that are going to, you know, get disrupted by other parts of the thing, but where is this thread that we can have a, an honest conversation? Um, I yeah. can't say that I was incredibly successful at that, but that's just that I was solving for that, that issue. Yeah. You're, you just, you literally just started a new role two days ago. Uh, I was surprised to see that like, Oh, I wonder if she's going to have to cancel on me for the, for the podcast. So I appreciate you still making the time. Uh, so you, you literally just started a role at JP Morgan and your, your title is executive director design for data and AI research. That is a lot of words. What does it actually mean? Do you know yet? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, I have a sense for what it means. Um, and it's, and it's actually, it's the title on my like contract is, is data. I think it's like data tooling, AI research design or something like that. Okay. I'm trying to shorten it up because it's right. like. <laughs> you took it from 15 words down to 10. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, and, I, and 
you know, I'm on day three and I'm very thankful. Um, I've joined at just the perfect time. Um, and this is so funny. I, I, I posted my <laughs> announcement of taking the role on Monday on LinkedIn. And literally the next thing up in my feed was a previous colleague that I had at Capital One who leads the um, core technology for uh, AI at JP Morgan posted, Hey, we're having this AI summit <laughs> company. And I was like, okay, I have to get up here for this AI summit. Cause I think I have to learn this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Figure out what this company is doing. Uh, and so I uh, hopped the train up yesterday uh, to get up here and, and take part in the AI, AI summit and have just been drinking with them from the fire hose yesterday. And, and yeah. today I will be as well. Um, to learn more. Uh, the AI research function at, at JP Morgan is led by this woman, Manuela Veloso, uh, who is this amazing researcher, uh, just a powerhouse. And so she I had the good fortune of meeting her earlier today. Uh, but it's like an academic conference inside of JP Morgan where, oh, you know, with posters. and <laughs> I guess she can talk about a lot more than too. You know, about, about, you can also talk about a lot more stuff, you know, internal kind of stuff that people are working on and that you can't share if you're speaking publicly. Exactly. So I've just mm-hmm. been reading um, about all the research that that's being done internally. It's absolutely stunning. The I can't share any of it. Right. <laughs> but it's interesting. It's fascinating. There's so much stuff going on. Uh, so as the design lead uh, for. Uh, the space around data and and AI research, I'm sort of getting acclimated first and foremost to what's being done. Uh, And then really looking for, I'm a team of one right now, so I can't do much, but where can I, where can I start working? Um, And as I think about building a team around this space, um, what are, where are the places where we can have the most impact? So again, going back to the scale of you know, the, of the enterprise, um, the things that we're unlocking with AI and the research being done. When I think about that and where it's being executed at the company, at JP Morgan, as a designer, where should I start to plant myself and figure out where I need to be? Uh, and so that's my job right now for the next, you know, X many days is to figure out where that can be, um, you know, and starting to plan for, okay, do I, Am I thinking about a UX team that's focused on, um, you know, internal platforms or products uh, in the data space? Am I thinking about how we're implementing uh, certain types of AI at, across the enterprise? Um, how, you know, do, should I stand up a human-centered AI uh, team, design team that's uh, focused on, uh, mm-hmm. you know, leveraging that technology throughout the company? Uh, so early days still, uh, you know, yeah, come back yeah. next year and we'll have a different conversation. You're going to forget, every, you're going to forget everything from the first week anyway. So, that's right. Yeah. So right now you're, you're just trying to get the lay of the land to figure out what you do need in your team. Before you start, you know, because you don't know who you need right now. Is that right? No, that's right. I don't know who I need yeah. right now. I have a sense for, you know, what yeah. what I would like to stand up. Uh, you know, I think I obviously am, you know, if I'm thinking of anything in the AI and, and data space, it needs to, I'll need people who are, you know, proficient. They understand data. They've used data in yeah. the past. Um, yeah. um, but also people who are just 
passionate about solving human problems. And so it's really mm-hmm. that marriage of, of folks that I look for, regardless of what the discipline is, if it's, you know, a UX designer or a researcher or a data viz or a service designer, that's, you know, fundamentally folks who are, um, you know, data proficient uh, and, and human centered uh, mm-hmm. at the core of it. So those are clearly two things you're going to look for in people you hire but you're kind of missing the soft side of it. Like how, how are they going to fit in with a team? Cause they might have those qualities, but they might just not be good to work with. How do you tease that out of people when you're, when you're meeting them or thinking of hiring them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I... They can be technically gifted, but a jerk. <laughs> yes. I'm not 100%. Uh, I don't have a 100% track record. And un- un- uh... nobody does. <laughs> The jerks, but um, but I think having people tell stories of their past work and how they worked with others um, is often mm-hmm. a good way to get a sense for that. You know, you can't ask someone, "Are you a jerk or not?" Right? <laughs> you can subtly ask them. Yeah, <laughs> but if you have them tell stories about how they worked with others. Um, if you have them to still tell stories of where they found the most um, joy in their work, where mm-hmm. they've had the most, um, you know, success in their work, you c- and they might not ever say like outright if they, you know, how they worked with others, but you could get a sense for it through the words that they use. Yeah. Um, so one, you can get a sense through the story and like. Just like, okay, you can pick up on, did they work with others with on this or not? Are they picking something that they did by themselves? Um, you can tell by the words people use, like, do they use the word I a lot versus we? Mm. Um, you know, they oftentimes people will, uh, people that I find work that I like to work with share a lot about not just you know, they don't just say we we made this or we did that. They uh, will often share like, oh, so and so did this thing that I then did this thing, and and you know, they just share the names and the the personalities of people that they worked with, um, and those types of people who are sharing how they fit in with others. Right. Um, I, f- I find working with those few people. Um, usually is a good, uh, you know, is usually a good fit because they've, uh, they've internalized that they've internalized how they work with others, where mm-hmm. they rely on others, how they want to, you know, be with a team. Um, and so I think telling the stories is, uh, for me, it's at least my technique. Yeah. What about the opposite side of that? Trying to figure out, cause everybody's going to be able to talk about their successes and how they work well with the team. Do you ever ask about uh, when they've had a terrible experience working with the team? Um, I probably have. I'm kind not, of like how they handle that experience more than anything yeah, else. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes I ask, you know, about a failure that, you know, when if you experience a failure, how did you deal with it? Um, you know, what, uh, what would you do differently? Um, those types of things. Um, and just to get, sometimes that just opens the door for conversations too. Like, yeah. let me see how you think about that. How did you internalize it? Mm-hmm. How did you, did you go and run and hide away somewhere? Or did you, 
like you can use the classic uh, you know tell me more tell me more to try to get them to to keep talking right yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 that's funny what's your what is your favorite interview question so anybody that might be uh interviewing with you if they listen to this what's the one question you're going to ask them that they could prepare for oh gosh i'm not going to spoil <laughs> <laughs> okay i tried <laughs> I would say I don't have one favorite uh, question to ask, but I would say I do like having conversations and I want people to just feel comfortable, um, you know, talking about their career, their goals, the way that they work things, excite them and interest them. And I I take a pretty casual approach to um, at least, you know, the first uh, interview uh, and before we could dive deep into, you know, some of the intricacies, but, um, you know, I, I prefer to have just a, a more casual conversation. Right. So it's, so if it's more like a conversation, then, you know, you asking a question. So if it turns into more, you having to force questions out of it, then that's probably yeah. not a good sign. That's a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Cause you know, if, if you, if you, if you kind of click with somebody pretty quickly, then that's probably a good sign, you know, at, yeah. at least in your gut. Yeah. What are you going to do differently this time as you build out your team? Oh gosh. What am I going to do differently? Um, I think, you know, one thing, you know, going back to, you know, my eyes are bigger than my, my belly. I know that I have to be surgical about, especially after being at the summit where there's just so much stuff to work on and it's so exciting. I know that I have to. Good problem. uh, (laughs) Was that good? Yeah. Good, good problem to have. Um, I need to temper my excitement for everything and, um, you know, really get focused on where we can have the most impact. Um, And then I think in terms of the team to really making a, um, you know, and I'm not sure this would be different than last time, but I think um, just the approach to have a perspective on where design can have an outsized impact. It's easy to put a design team in anywhere and and have an impact. Um, But what are the skill sets that are going to really provide the company with, you know, something bigger than what we're envisioning, right? Like where we have a more aspirational approach. And so looking at, uh, you know, different disciplines in uh, different design disciplines. So when I went to Capital One, I was focused on data visualization, right? Um, I still have that as part of my background, but what what are the skills and what are the disciplines that are that I could put to use in building out this new team uh, that could really uh, be, level up uh, where we're where we're at right now? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to switch gears now. We're not going to talk about work anymore. Is that okay? We're going to talk, we're going to talk politics instead. (laughs) So, you know, we just had an election. I I voted by mail. So even though I'm living abroad, I did vote by mail. My daughter forgot to vote, unfortunately. So, but there's probably going to be a runoff in Georgia. So she'll, she'll get the vote again. Um, And, you know, clearly based on the results, the rhetoric, everything, you know, 
the U.S. is is as divided as it's ever as it's ever been. Probably, mm-hmm. um, what role do you think data has in our divided world? We're seeing the same thing in the U.K. You're seeing a, a bigger separation between the left and the right, the rich and the poor. You're seeing it in Germany now. We saw Italy basically elected a dictator. Um, you know, Brazil, fortunately, is kind of maybe going the other direction. Maybe that's a sign right, of things right. going the other way. But you know, how do how do we um, how do you think data can can be used in our um, or what role does data have, or what role have you kind of you know seen? Yeah. Um, this area is where I get very discouraged. I have to say, um, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> and I think data will continue to divide us quite frankly. Um, you can make data say anything that you want. Mm. And so I think what we often witness is people who have an argument or a belief or a thing they want to accomplish they dig in and then they find the data to support that cause or belief or right. argument, right? And further entrench them in their you know, argument and their belief. And so we'll continue, I think, to see these mm. data being used to, uh, to further to divide us even more. Yeah. Divide us even more. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's an unfortunate because once you have data, then people look at that like it's some kind of ground truth and believe in it. And so it's like, I have this belief and now I'm going to like plant this like flight bowl of data over here. Um, and it's like my shield to everything else. And I just point back to the s- statistics. Right. Um, and so I'm, I, I find it very discouraging as a data practitioner in the world that we live in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's, you know, I think we've sort of, it's almost like we're, um, we need to like look beyond the surface statistics that people are throwing around for every, and and almost just throw out that, all of that and, and get down to something more foundational around human values and right. you know, what are we actually trying to solve mm-hmm. in, in the world? Um, we can't have a conversation up here with people entrenched in, um, in these, you know, yeah. and just continuing to, to entrench themselves. I don't have the right answer. I don't know, yeah. what it is, yeah. but, but I do feel really discouraged. Yeah. It, I, I do as well. One of the things that bothers me the most is, you know, when I'm trying to decide who to vote for, I have no idea what either person stands for. All yeah. I know is what they don't like about the other person <laughs> and what they're saying about the other person. I don't even know if that's true. Right. So, you know, how do, how do I even begin to approach like separating fact from fiction? I don't know what I'm, if what I'm seeing is true or not. I, I really don't believe any of it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I go into all of it with like some serious skepticism. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you have to, I think you have to, there's no, there's no way around that. And I, you know, I think there's, there's going, there's this quote that I often recall um, uh, this quote by Nicanor Para that says there are two slices of bread. You eat two and I eat one average consumption one slice of bread per person. 
right? Now, okay. that's not a lie. <laughs> right, right. But it's not the truth. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, that's the way I feel about, you know, what you're describing is you like, what is fact and what's fiction? How do you, you can't yeah. just look at, again, when there's data, when there's, you know, propaganda, things that we're being faced with every day. It's very hard to make sense of, of fact and fiction or like I see it really as a spectrum of like even yeah. fact or fiction sometimes, like depending on where you're standing. Um, and so how do you, like, how do we change that? Right. I don't know the answers, but I do know being that skepticism that you described, I think we should all have that. Yeah. Be yeah. Just our daily, um, approach to things is just mm. a healthy dose of skepticism about what we're being told. Yeah. Yeah. If you could change one thing about American politics to try to maybe get things going in the right direction, what would it be? I've got an idea I'm going to share as well, but I'm curious to know if it'll be the same. (laughs) One thing. (laughs) One thing that you think would help right away. In in politics specifically? Well, in in America. Yeah. Like, you know, we're, we're really divided right now. How can we start, how can we start to change the political environment that we have? I want you to share what you have in mind. Okay. Very easy. Term limits. So the president has term limits. Why doesn't the Supreme Court, why doesn't Congress? You know, why can somebody in Congress stay there for 50 years? Yeah. They should be two terms. Everybody (laughs) should be two terms. Make it equal. You know, like the, you know, Supreme Court, they can serve a, you know, maybe a nine year term. And that way every president gets to elect two. Yeah. Then you would have to compromise, right? You'd be forced to. And I think about like, um, Uh, Jesse Ventura, when he was the governor of Minnesota, he said he was only going to run for one term because Mm -hmm. he wanted people to know that he was there to get things done. He wasn't there to be a career politician and he got a lot of things done. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. That's my idea. It'll never happen, though, because because Congress would have to vote themselves out of office. basically. (laughs) Now, that would be really helpful. I think about that a lot in terms of the Supreme Supreme Court. Um, You know, it's just... It's painful to see, you know, where we've, you know, where we are uh, and what the Supreme Court has done recently. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's huge. I think, you know, we also have to fix, you know, gerrymandering. There's, it's so, it's so small. It's so painful uh, to see how we are, you know, redrawing. It's a way to divide the classes as well. Exactly. I mean, and this comes down to, I think, an area where uh, data practitioners can serve better Mm -hmm. is helping fix those problems. I saw a great visualization years ago on redistricting in Florida. I forget who did it. Um, They ended up doing it for the whole U.S., I think. um, I mean, making it representative like it's supposed to be. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, But I think showing like that's a great example of when you can show what the data is, you know, what data is underlying things that, you know, I think there's a lot of room in, in areas where we have these systemic problems. We have these sort of concentrations of power that we don't really see anymore. They're intangible, but they're, they're created by things like gerrymandering, redistricting, they're, you know, 
things in the financial world are shaped by policies that we had, you know, decades and decades ago. Um, but they create these systemic problems in the country. And so if there's one way I think we can, as data practitioners, um, help to move the needle there, it's making those things visible. Hey, here's how those things were created. Here's the data. Here are the people that live in these districts. Here's like, if we start to actually see um, what's happening in a visual way, so taking something that's intangible and people just don't really think about making it visible, making it tangible, um, that can sometimes help wake people up to what the problems are. Yeah. I remember seeing the, the, um, districting map or whatever it's called of, of Austin. And that's probably mm-hmm. the worst example of gerrymandering in the U S where they literally like cut out one block so that it can't, you know, because it would flip the vote over to the Republicans where the Democrats, it happens both ways, but yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Let, let, let's, uh, I'm sorry to bring it up a depressing topic there, but um, yeah. time timely, I think so, yeah. <laughs> but it's important, I think, because, you know, it all revolves around data. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's get into some, maybe, maybe a few fun questions here. Who's been the most influential person in your life? You have, Andy. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. but <laughs> Give me my $20. <laughs> can't, be, can't be anybody in your family. Can't be my family? No. I was going to say my kids. Your kids. Okay. Well, I'll, yeah. all right. I'll let you say family then. <laughs> uh, your kids. How, well, how have I mean, my my kids are 11 and 15 um and they so just about to be monsters <laughs> <laughs> they've i mean they have completely changed my life and everything that i do and and focus on and and have really changed who i am as a person um and so in that sense uh and i think i just they're the first people that I really felt like, oh, I'm, I'm actually here for somebody else. Like fundamentally, right. I'm not here for me anymore. I'm here for them. And so that changes a lot of the way, um, you know, I've had to, you know, adult <laughs> in a way that I haven't had to in the past before having kids. So yeah. um, it just takes, it's made me make, take stock of things and be really, um, critical of the world uh, and how we make it a better place. And, you know, so like some of the questions you're asking me um, are exactly things that, you know, I want them, I want to help yeah. them understand we have a, an active role in these spaces and how do we. It's like we, a duty. <laughs> yeah, we have a duty. It's so true. Yeah. Um, and so they've, I mean, they've fundamentally changed me. I think as far as people outside of my family, um, I mean, I don't want to name anybody specifically. There's just so many um, artists, uh, disruptors, uh, you know, people who just do things differently uh, and think about things differently. Um, They're going to, you know, all folks who just approach things uh, in an an unconventional way um, that one... I think we just need more of those types of people in the world. Uh, and then to just unlock things in my own brain uh, yeah. for, you know, give myself the latitude and freedom to sort of 
think about things in, outside of the status quo, I guess. And so I like to just experience lots of different types of art, mm-hmm. artist performance um, and, and use that as, a, as sources of inspiration. Yeah. One thing I, I think I've recommended on every one of these episodes I've done so far is a newsletter called The Daily Dad. And it's not just for dads. I think it can also be used. So if you go to dailydad.com, you can sign up for their newsletter. It's oh. it's absolutely fantastic. And I wish I had it when I was a new parent because mm-hmm. uh, I would have approached things probably quite differently. It's very it's very eye opening and it makes you appreciate your kids a bit more, I think, you know, than, than you know, we sometimes we take them for granted and yeah. and we shouldn't. You know, so it's um, I, I would highly recommend that to anybody, whether it's uh, a dad or a mom. I think it, I think it's great. And I don't get paid for that. I wish I did because I've got a lot of people to sign up for. <laughs> Maybe I should ask them if they'll sponsor the podcast or something. Um, OK, uh, what's the last thing that made you laugh? Last thing that made me laugh. You. Like, yeah. I mean, like a serious belly laugh. <laughs> um, gosh, uh, you know, I use Instagram as my social media of choice. Um, and I tend to follow a lot of different um, Golden comedians on Instagram. I'm sure they're all on TikTok. My son likes to kid me that like I'm two weeks behind. <laughs> so I don't use TikTok. <laughs> so, so my laughs are always two, two weeks late. Um, but, but there are, you know, a number of different comedians that I just, uh, it's it's the it's a thing that I need because otherwise I would get lost in the crazy yeah yeah I love I love like Colbert and and Trevor Noah uh, they're you know John Oliver um, yeah, Trevor yeah. Noah is leaving The Daily Show too which is kind of sad uh, but yeah I, I hadn't watched it live in in years and hmm. then the one episode I watched live is the one he announced that he was leaving I was like what about you well at least you got that one in yeah. Yeah. All right. Two, two more questions and then, and then I'll let you go. I know you've got a new, a new job to get to. Um, what is your biggest regret personally? And if you could go back and change it, what would you do? You know, I don't, I don't a good one to read ahead of time. <laughs> I have too many personal regrets to share the biggest ones. I will share one regret that I have from leaving my last job. Um, and it's really painful, actually. It becomes more, you know, as a lot of regrets do, I find they become more painful over yeah, time. Yeah, you don't realize it at the time. Yes. <laughs> but I'm trying to use it as a lesson for myself. Um, when I was at Capital One, right, uh, you know, maybe six months before I left or so, uh, our CEO, Rich Fairbank, who's a wonderful human being, um, he started a... Um, it had actually been, it was the time I took it, I went through the program, but he had started it earlier than that. But it was a, um, it was basically a training program for the executive uh, leaders of Capital One. Mm-hmm. And it was on racial equity. And it was, it was like, the way I describe it is like critical race theory for adults um, who should okay. know better. <laughs> but everybody learned something. Um, it was, you know, I, you know, consider myself pretty knowledgeable about that space. So it wasn't like incredibly, you know, it wasn't like I was starting at square one and, you know, was doe eyed, but I still learned a lot through the program. And, but the bigger effect of that program was 
he was essentially saying to his executive leadership, hey, we have a duty to do better in this space. We have a duty to do better, um, you know, not only for our people, but our customers of the world. Uh, how do we think about racial equity uh, and and what what do we want to do? It gave us so much latitude as leadership at the company to really explore that space. And so I left at a time when I could have been, I think, doing more, um, you know, for for the world, given that that latitude, given that expectation, if you will, from from my CEO uh, to do to explore that from my own discipline, from my space, from my leadership position. Uh, and so I, I left at a time when I could have, could have done something there and I, and mm-hmm. I walked away and that's the biggest uh, regret that I have actually at Capital One was, was leaving at a time when we were exploring things. Yeah. At a you could have been really influential in, in that right. change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. so um, I'm really hopeful for the leadership that's, that's left there, that they will do wonderful things um, and, and really make progress. Um, but not being able to take part in that is a big regret. Okay. I'm going to steal the last question from, um, I, I listened to the podcast, uh, The Diary of the CEO with Stephen Bartlett. Do you, do you listen to that by chance? Have you heard of it? It's it's really, really good. Uh, I listen to it on long drives because the interviews are really long <laughs> and play it on one and a half speed. Um, but really, really interesting. And one of the things that he asks his guests is, um, what question should I ask? What tough question should I ask my next guest? And I'm not going to tell you who that is. Oh, God. <laughs> Jeez, that's... Oh, that is hard. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> It's good though, isn't it? I think it's great. It is good. Um, I think the toughest, I don't know if it's a tough question. Um, doesn't have to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. But I, interesting. Like where I think every person should have a perspective on what they can like what should we be unlocking for humanity? What what principle or value should we be, should we have at the forefront of work today? Like whatever your discipline, whatever your domain in industry that you're in, like what one principle or value um, should we be, sort of pulling from and, and, and using as the foundation of, of how to approach our work or where we're going in the world. All right. I, I was typing you, out your question. So I had to put myself on mute because I didn't want you to hear the, all the clicks of, of my keyboard <laughs> in the background. That's great. So um, be sure to tune in next week. And now I'm going to tell you who my next guest is. It's Raya Usher. So Raya trains triathletes that have gone on to compete in Ironman Europe and world championships. She's also my coach and I can't imagine training with somebody else. She's absolutely fantastic. It's one of those things where you outsource the problem to an expert and you just don't think about it. Um, So she's also a former Canadian international Alpine ski racer. And she's got an incredible knack for knowing when to push me. I assume her other athletes as well. And when I need a break and so much of that is data driven 
And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, how does she, as a coach, use data to maximize the performance of her athletes? Kim, thank you for joining me today. Um, you've, you've always made an, an incredible impression on me since we first met. And it's been really fun watching you kick ass along the way. So keep it up. Awesome. Thanks, Andy. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye. Bye.